You're listening to the Hard Men Podcast, reclaiming biblical masculinity in a world of softness. Well, welcome to the Hard Men Podcast. I am your host, Eric Kahn. And in this episode, I want to talk about the myth of the nice guy. I want to discuss what's at the heart of this myth and therefore at the heart of what we might call nice guy syndrome. And I also want to look at why this has become the dominant model for men in much of the Western world today. Now, beyond that, I want to explore the ways in which the nice guy has become the prototypical vision for masculinity in the church, thanks in large part to egalitarian and, in particular, complementarian theologies. So in this episode, we're going to look at the results of this failed nice guy model of masculinity, both in the church and in the culture, and we're going to talk about some practical ways that we can go about as men rebuilding a vision and competency for masculinity that is robust, potent, God-honoring, and life-giving. So I want to begin by taking a look at the nice guy myth. And I want to ask a simple question, what is the myth of the nice guy? So I'm going to start with a definition for this all-too-common myth, and then I'm going to unpack some of its basic components. So the first tenet of the nice guy myth is this. First of all, the nice guy myth is the belief that man's sole purpose and primary mission in life is to serve and to please his woman. Based on the first tenet of this myth, many men make their girlfriends or wives the all-consuming center of their lives. She is like the sun in their universe, and they are like little planets always sucked into her orbit. Men who define their existence solely in terms of her. She is man's mission. And so this nice guy will bend his every effort, his every waking moment, trying to keep her happy and emotionally satisfied. The nice guy always offers a shoulder to cry on, and he's like a therapist, always seeking to offer words of affirmation and comfort. He's the dude a girl always calls to unload her emotional baggage after she's broken up with her boyfriend, but often not the man she wants to date or marry. And no matter how exhausting this gets for the poor little nice guy, he ultimately believes it's his duty to serve as an emotional landfill for his girlfriend or wife's constant emotional dumping. He believes that if he does this enough, the girl will eventually see what a glorious white knight in shining armor he actually is, and then she'll want to be with him. Now, in Christian circles, this first tenet of the nice guy myth is enshrined as a centerpiece of complementarian theology. In this theology, the belief goes like this. Men's primary mission is to be a servant leader. This is just another way to talk about a nice, wimpy guy. It's shorthand for his wife's neutered and domesticated manservant. Instead of defining his mission the way God does in Genesis, that of worker and warrior who is taking dominion of the whole earth, complementarian theologians sought to appease feminists in the early 1990s 
by offering up men as servant leaders who exist exclusively to satisfy their wives' emotional well-being. For more on this theology, I would recommend to you a previous episode that I did on complementarian theology, and I think that'll prove helpful to you in understanding how this theology supports nice guy syndrome. For now, we'll continue to expound on the problems with this view, but I do want to point out this one thing. Far from a Christian conception of masculinity, the nice guy myth is fundamentally a form of people-pleasing. It's what theologians have called fear of man. According to this myth, men make the woman their golden-haired goddess, and they're constantly walking on eggshells to ensure that her capricious emotional state is never disturbed. This is sinful, of course, but also at a practical level, it simply does not work. Men in these types of nice-guy roles are notoriously miserable, emasculated, and, and get this, they are completely detestable to the women who often groom them to be this way. This brings us to the second major tenet of the nice-guy myth. Second, this myth holds that if a man can somehow keep a woman emotionally satisfied and relationally secure, she in turn will give him the relational investment and the sex that he wants. This whole ideological framework of niceness assumes that if a man is nice enough, if he's enough of an emotional doormat and a soft-spoken relational pacifier to his wife, well, she'll, in return, do him the favor of giving him the affection and sexual intimacy he so desperately craves. In his book, No More Mr. Nice Guy, Dr. Robert Glover calls this the covert contract. It's the unspoken principle that all nice guys operate on, and it goes like this. If I do the dishes tonight and listen to her complain about her day for hours on end, while she polishes off a bottle of rosé, well then she'll have sex with me. She'll give me the emotional attention that I want. Again, this is the operating principle for the guy who allows women to emotionally dump on him, the man who refuses to draw relational boundaries that clearly communicate his desires, and the thinking is that this will somehow make her want to be with him, have sex with him, etc. Now, what I want to look at now are some of the particular traits of the nice guy. What is this guy like, and what are the fundamental assumptions that he operates on on a daily basis? Now, we've addressed these somewhat, but I want to put it in more bold resolution. The nice guy is fundamentally about these three things. First of all, he's a passive-aggressive invertebrate who does not speak directly about his desires and needs. Instead of clearly communicating to his wife what he actually wants about things like sex, he engages in these covert contracts, and he assumes that if he meets his wife or girlfriend's emotional needs, well, she'll respond with sex. When she doesn't, he pouts, he lashes out, he gives her the cold shoulder, or he looks at pornography. Likewise, he doesn't establish appropriate relational boundaries with his wife, but he allows her to control every element of his life and to steamroll him as a man. 
By way of contrast, I want to ask, what would a hard, masculine man do? Well, he would do this. He would say to his wife, I want to have more sex. I want to have sex this afternoon. I want to have more enjoyable sex. He'd be direct about his desires and needs in a relationship, and he would not tolerate being trampled. In other words, he would be a man who sets firm relational boundaries. By the way, it's amazing, and I've seen this in counseling numerous times and in my own life, how when you clearly communicate these sort of things to your wife, she becomes energized for sex, you often get what you want, and her respect for you grows exponentially in the process. The second trait of a nice guy is this. He's a non-assertive, non-dominant, non-aggressive wimp. In other words, he's effeminate and soft, not masculine and hard. You see, God has designed men to be assertive, aggressive, and dominant. That's how we've been hardwired as men. And despite what feminist ideology teaches, this is actually what women really want. This is why so many women are, despite their best efforts or their feminist beliefs, still often attracted to the prototypical jerk. While he may be an a-hole, and he's also probably an incredibly bad relational decision, he's also often attractive to women because, compared to so many wet-noodle men, he exhibits some form of these masculine traits of dominance that spineless nice guys so often lack. Here's the other thing from a biblical perspective. Despite what many of these Christian nice guys think, Scripture never calls us to be nice. Niceness is not listed as a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Instead, we are to live with our wives in an understanding way, bearing with the weaker sex, but we're certainly never told to allow our wives to rule us or to live a life constantly in fear of upsetting her delicate emotional balance. In fact, this nice guy spinelessness is what got Adam and Eve kicked out of the garden in the first place. It's a sinful disposition to be repented of, not a way of life to be embraced. Biblically, men are to be like meek warhorses. This is something we've talked a lot about in this show. They are to be supremely powerful, yet always under control. They are to be physically strong, sexually potent, morally courageous, and plain-spoken. These are, by the way, the things that a woman finds sexually enticing. The third trait of nice guys is this. He is a people-pleasing doormat and an emotional leech that orbits his wife. Nice guys will often lie, hide, and refuse to confront sin in their wife because they're afraid of upsetting her. They'll drink beer in the garage and hide the cans so that their wife doesn't get upset with them. They'll stop hanging out with their guy friends almost entirely, or spending a night smoking stogies and playing cards because their wives and girlfriends demand their total attention. And these men let this happen. They'll let their wives dress and groom them like a little overmothered schoolboy. They'll let her dictate their every waking hour. On the other hand, hard men must boldly lead their wives with courage and conviction. They must confront her sin and not walk around eggshells in her presence. 
They, these men, need to order their households well. And their primary mission is to take dominion and to please the Lord, not, ultimately, to please their wives. She cannot be the little god on the pedestal of their life. Sure, these men will prioritize family time, but they'll also understand the importance of masculine friendships and activities. They do not let their wives dictate their apparel, grooming, or facial hair length. The next thing that I want to do is take a look at the results of this myth, both in the culture and in the church. So I want to ask this question. Is the nice guy myth an effective strategy for men? Does it make men or women happy? Well, the answer to this question is a resounding no. This myth produces men who are neutered, wimpy, and often people-pleasing parasites. Their girlfriends and wives usually feel smothered around them, they're annoyed by them, and they're often relationally frustrated when they realize they've essentially married a woman. It's little wonder that lesbianism is an attractive alternative for many women. At least women come by their softness naturally. For men, it's a gross distortion. Here's an even more interesting irony. Women in these relationships, well, they're not happy. They often become nasty, brawling, bitchy, unruly women. This isn't all that surprising, given that women are designed by God to be under the headship and rule of their husbands, a task that requires not softness, but hard masculinity. Though they may not realize it, many of these super bitchy women and controlling women are actually crying out for their men to take a leadership role in the home and in the relationship. Now, we all know men and women in this position. It's the guy whose wife orders him around, tells him what he can and cannot purchase or what he can and cannot drink or smoke, and won't let him have a life outside of her. Sometimes she allows him to go hunting with his male friends or family but then she purchases a hunting widow shirt for the two days of the year that he's gone. And she posts it on Facebook just to show the world what a martyr she really is. Now to real men and to godly women, this sort of thing is incredibly pathetic. Meanwhile, this sort of dude has got to perform a 12-page long honey-do list just at the mere prospect of getting his wife in bed with him once every two or three months. This is the kind of man that we call pussy-whipped. And this is the kind of woman in a relationship we call a stark raving biatch. These are the miserable couples that bicker constantly, and despite these covert contracts and bartering for sex, it never really works. So this is the couple, as I said, that is having sex maybe once every two or three months. What I want to do now is take a look at the historical reasons why we've gotten to this point and how this nice guy myth came to be so predominant in our society. So the first thing that I want to do is ask this question. How did we get to this very unique historical point where nice guy syndrome is the accepted norm? And then I want to respond with three reasons why this myth has become societally normative. The second thing we'll do after that is dig into three practical steps we need to take to put this nefarious myth of the nice guy, which is really just a glorification of effeminacy in men, to death. 
So first of all, how did we get to this point? I'm going to lay out three trends since World War II that have produced generations of effeminate men, or what we've been calling the nice guy. Number one, boys have been separated from the world of work and men. The first wave of industrialization in the early 1800s sent men to factories and urban centers and separated them from their households for the vast majority of the day. Prior to that, throughout most of human history, men worked with their sons, usually in trades that were based in the home. You can think of carpenters, shoemakers, blacksmith, and so on. Afterwards, men began to see little of their children, and they continued to play a diminishing role in their son's formation. Now, a second wave of industrialization post-World War II ramped up this urbanization and industrialization trend, effectively putting to death rural agrarian ways of life that were common for most Americans. At the same time, public education placed children in state-run schools through most of their teenage years. Prior to that, sons would have spent most of their time with their father learning a trade and in turn learning masculinity while working alongside their father and other men. The net result of all of this was that sons were disconnected from their fathers, the one natural source for masculine formation. Well, it's little wonder then that authentic masculinity has been dying by the decade. Fathers went to an office or factory and were dislocated from their sons during their most formative years. At one time, it was believed that fathers were the primary source of discipleship for young boys, both in work and morality. But now, a boy's formation is seen as falling predominantly under the purview of the state and women. The second trend since World War II is this. Boys have been raised and educated exclusively by women. Since formation was no longer happening at work with fathers, it is important to see where it was happening and by whom. It was happening in secular schools and, again, predominantly by women. No longer were boys learning how to be a man from men. They were learning how to be a man from women. And this is where the myth of the nice guy comes from. Mostly what these women have done is teach our boys how to please women. It's masculinity from a feminist perspective. Rowdy little boys are told to sit still and act like girls for seven or eight hours a day in the classroom. And if they can't do that, well, then we give them drugs to try and calm them down. Aggression, dominance, fisticuffs, physicality and sexual energy are stamped out at all cost because they're seen as dangerous. And boys are overly mothered. They're underfathered and consequently very effeminate. Now, number three, radical feminism has made war on masculine virtues and competencies. The rise of radical feminism in the 20th century has led to an all-out war on masculinity. Masculinity, in turn, is viewed as inherently toxic and shameful, and as a result, men have come to think of their own nature, from sexual desire to physical aggressiveness, as inherently evil. They're told to suppress it, be ashamed of it, and spend a lifetime atoning for it. 
Not helping matters at all, the church has largely embraced feminist tendencies, even in places where it has not fully embraced feminist ideology. One example of this trend is how many Reformed pastors, men like Mark Driscoll and Matt Chandler, will preach hard at men's sins, but not at women's sins. The assumption underlying all of this is that men are inherently sinister and seek to defile women, while women are by nature illustrious maidens of virtue. They're pure and undefiled until these nasty men get involved. I remember sitting in as a Reformed pastor counseled a young man and his girlfriend who'd been having sex. The pastor spent the whole time shaming the man for, quote, taking advantage of this innocent young girl, and he spent exactly no time addressing her behavior. He said to the man, how dare you take advantage of her? Do you think she wants to have sex with you? Of course she doesn't want to. You're the one who's forcing her to do it. The sheer stupidity of that logic has stuck with me for some time. It's this notion that teenage girls don't want sex just as badly as men do, they aren't by nature sinners, and that it's fundamentally men who go about corrupting these innocent maidens. Well, it's no wonder, given all this, that masculinity is sort of a dying breed, and the nice guy syndrome has been on the rise. What I want to do now is look at the ways in which we can escape this myth of the nice guy. After all, what good is a diagnosis if you don't have a cure? So I'm going to end this episode by delving into three things that must be done if we are to reverse the curse of the nice guy myth. And each one of these, you'll notice, is a way to address these historical trends that have led to the feminization of our boys and men and are the reason why we are where we are at this moment in cultural history. So number one, what can you do? You can do this. Sons need to work alongside fathers and men in household-based economies. If we are to begin anew training our sons to be masculine men, it must be the fathers who take the responsible initiative. Mothers obviously do a lot, and they can and they should, but they should not ultimately be the teachers for boys of masculine virtue. First, this means fathers must be around their sons on a daily, ongoing basis, not just an annual hunting or fishing trip. This sounds foreign to our ears, but it was once common practice. You see, the reality is you cannot invest quality without quantity of time spent together. Just consider the number of conversations the father in Proverbs has with his son, and you'll quickly realize that massive body of wisdom could not have been transferred from father to son in 30 minutes of interaction at the end of the day. No, instead, they were walking, talking, working side by side, and together all day long. This means as Christian fathers, we need to find creative ways to restore our productive property to the household. And actually, I believe we have a great opportunity to do this during the COVID crisis, which has forced many companies to allow home-based or freelance work. Instead of working for others away from the home, we as fathers need to invest in starting small businesses, in homeschooling, 
and finding ways to bring work back into the home where we can work alongside our sons. Now, all of these things allow us, homeschooling, small business, to spend the day side by side with our boys. It means our plans for cultural dominion must include Christian-run businesses that operate adjacent to churches and that preach and teach the whole counsel of Scripture. I'll give just one example of how this can work from my own life. I caught this vision for household-based business years ago while working as a writer and editor in corporate America. And it was actually Wendell Berry who clued me into this feature of how society has shifted away from fathers in the home to fathers in the factory. I slowly began building contacts in the industry I was working in, as well as experience, with the goal that one day I could work from home running my own freelance writing business. Now, I'll be honest, it took several years, but by God's grace, it has become a reality. As a result of this, I am able to spend the bulk of the day in and around the home with my family and sons. I'm able to discipline, teach, and work together with my boys on an ongoing daily basis. Now, for others, it might mean taking your 10 years of experience as a welder, a construction worker, or an HVAC repairman and starting your own business. Yes, it's true. It takes an insane amount of work, but it is necessary if you're serious about passing on authentic biblical masculinity to your sons. Second, fathers and men need to be heavily involved in their son's education and rearing on a daily basis. Now, this is closely related to household-based economies. And as I talked about in a past episode, I am a firm believer in homeschooling, that Christian children need a Christian education. But one of the biggest mistakes I see many fathers make, and one I've made in the past, is that all too often we turn this endeavor of schooling our children completely over to our wives. It's fine if a wife does most of the schooling, especially for the littles, but as boys enter the teenage years, fathers need to make time and take the initiative for a more active leading role in their boys' formation, discipleship, and education. It's natural for boys during this time period anyway to begin pushing away from their mother. This is something that fathers are necessary for as they teach their sons how to leave and cleave, so leave their mother and eventually find a wife, how to do this in a healthy, respectful fashion. As the father takes a leading role in education and formation for the son, he has this unique opportunity to impart authentic masculinity. And remember, as we've talked about before, sons learn through imitation just as much as they do by formal teaching. This is why being together as father and son is so important. Now, third and finally, we must recover biblical patriarchy and authentic masculinity. So, down with feminism. If radical feminism is the disease that has given rise to the nice guy, and I believe it is, then robust covenant-keeping patriarchy and hard masculinity is most definitely the cure. Fathers need to take a leading role in teaching and instilling these twin virtues in their warp and woof of their family life. 
That means helping their wives grow in godly femininity and helping their sons catch a vision for true fatherhood. Patriarchy and masculinity are learned by instruction and imitation, which require fathers to embrace a method of total immersion with their sons. These virtues of masculinity have to be lived out day by day and step by step. Boys have to be taught what their strength and sexuality are for. They need to be trained how to use their minds and to discipline their morals for the purpose of godliness. Sexuality is to be aimed and harnessed for marriage and fruitful, pleasurable procreation. It is not to be neutered and demonized. All of this is the work that fathers must be about. And likewise, sons must be taught the dangers of feminism and steered away from families and young women who embrace it. Well, I hope this episode has been helpful. I hope you have now a better understanding of the destructiveness of this myth of the nice guy. And I hope that you'll be encouraged not to be a nice guy and not to raise nice guys. Instead, my hope and prayer is that you'll be spurred on as fathers and mothers to raise biblically hard masculine men. Now, if you want to read more about this topic, I'd encourage you to check out Dr. Robert Glover's book, which is titled No More Mr. Nice Guy. I'll provide a link for that book in the show notes. Well, thanks for joining me for this episode of the Hard Men podcast. Again, you can check out the show notes for more resources and information. You can follow me on Twitter. That's Eric, E-R-I-C underscore C-O-N-N. And by all means, please support the work on Patreon as I am seeking to produce more and more podcast material to write books and field guides for men seeking to train their sons and other men in the war of the Christian faith. Until next time, men, stay frosty, fight the good fight, act like men.